London, Singapore, Stockholm. All three of these cities have something in common, and it's not just a fabulous cosmopolitan lifestyle. Congestion charging is becoming increasingly popular in major cities around the world, with New York and Jakarta soon to join the fray. So why not Australia? We pay for electricity and water, but why do we often have the misplaced idea that roads should be free? Hello and welcome to the Grattan Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Clay. Today I'm joined by two members of Grattan's Transport and Cities team, Senior Associate Greg Moran and Associate James Ha, to discuss their new report, Why It's Time for Congestion Charging, Better Ways to Manage Busy Urban Roads. So James, before we get into the detail of the report, including what exactly congestion charging is, I'd like to ask a question about congestion itself. Obviously, no one likes being stuck in traffic, but isn't that just part of life in a big city? Why is the congestion such a big problem? Uh, So you're right, Kat. It is part of being in a big city, but cities work because they bring people together And then congestion is the unwanted byproduct of that process. So congestion currently costs Australian cities billions of dollars each year. A 2015 estimate from the Bureau of Infrastructure, Transport and Regional Economics put the figure at around $6 billion a year for Sydney and around $4.5 billion a year for Melbourne. Everyone who lives in the city has had some experience of congestion. So we know that trips take longer in the morning peak than at midnight uh, and journey times are less reliable then as well but there are less obvious costs to congestion too. So some people might decline a job offer if it's on the other side of town. Uh, And delays to trucks and vans make it harder to move goods around, which can increase prices for consumers. Uh, So there's two caveats to congestion. So we know it's a big problem, but previous Grattan work has shown that congestion is not spiraling out of control, contrary to popular belief. Uh, And secondly, it would be wildly expensive to totally eliminate congestion. So that would require sort of unimaginable amounts of infrastructure or some really heavy-handed restrictions on when you can drive. But with those two caveats, it's still true that the current level of congestion is excessive and it could be less. So, Greg, the new report's recommending that governments in Australia introduce congestion charging. What exactly is congestion charging and how would it work? Isn't it just another toll road? Yeah, so congestion charging involves charging drivers a fee if they contribute to peak hour congestion. So put another way, it's about paying to use the most in-demand roads at the most in-demand times. And so that's a really important point that it's not just another toll. It's not just a flat tax for using any road at any time. And it's certainly not about just raising revenue. What it's really aiming to do is to make people think twice about whether they really need to be on the busiest roads at peak times. And so there's a few different ways you can implement congestion charging. And there are sort of three typical models Firstly, there's uh, cordon charging where drivers paid across a boundary into and sometimes out of a designated zone or cordon, such as a CBD area. There's corridor charging where drivers pay to drive along, say, a, a busy urban freeway or arterial road. And there's also what's known as network-wide time-of-day distance-based charging. And so that involves drivers uh, paying for every kilometre they drive within a designated network or area um, with higher charges applying at places where there's higher demand or at times um, where there's higher demand. And so in our work, we're recommending that all three types of these congestion charge should be implemented uh, 
aggressively in Australia's larger cities, beginning with uh, court and charge in our CBDs. And so our next report, which will be published next week, will lay out a much more specific design and implementation pathway for Australian governments to follow. So you're leaving us with a little bit of a cliffhanger for next week's report, but stay tuned because we will discuss that next week. So one of the things I was interested in from the report, and I've mentioned before that many large cities around the world have already implemented various forms of congestion charging. So it's not a first to do it in Australia. What happened when other countries implemented congestion charging? So Singapore has actually had congestion charging since 1975. And it started out as this very manual system where drivers would have to buy a ticket to access certain parts of the city. Um, and then they switched to electronic road pricing, which is using a technology very similar to what we have in Australian toll roads. And when they made that switch, it cut traffic on those charged routes by about 15%. Uh, and now Singapore's planning to use GPS to sort of more finely target congestion where it exists. Um, and they review the prices of their charges every three months to make sure that it keeps traffic flowing smoothly most of the time. Um, so the other major city that is sort of very famous is London's congestion charge, which they introduced in 2003. And that immediately reduced delays within the central charged area by about 30%. And over time, that effect has been weakened because of the discounts and exemptions that were granted to residents of the area and to taxis and to ride sharing services like Uber. But the other place in Europe that's had congestion charging for quite a while now is Stockholm, as you mentioned. Um, and their cordon charge sort of cut traffic across the cordon by 20% once it was introduced. Another city we haven't talked about yet is Milan. They've had a congestion charge for a few years as well. And the result is 40% fewer cars in the central city. And now New York's legislators are planning to introduce congestion charging in Manhattan starting in 2021. So that's a list of fairly illustrious cities that have implemented congestion charging. One of the points that in the report that's really interesting is um, you talk about Stockholm. And I think in Australia, we've got a very, we get our backs up really quickly when someone mentions, mentions road tolls, congestion charging, um, fees for using something that we perceive as potentially free. But what happened in Stockholm? What was the reaction from the people before and after it had been implemented? So before it was implemented, um, the government committed to running a trial of congestion pricing. And right before the trial started was sort of the lowest point for popularity of congestion charging. There was less than 40% of the population in favour of the policy. Um, and when they ran the trial, people very quickly started to see how effective it was um, and support rose to be higher than 50%. They then had a referendum on the topic, which passed with more than 50% of the vote and congestion charging was implemented permanently from 2007 onwards. And since then, it's continued to grow in popularity. So a survey in 2011 suggested that about 70% of Stockholm's residents are supportive of the congestion charge. So it's almost like the proof is in the pudding. When it's implemented, people begin to see the results and have a more positive experience of it. So Greg, if we were looking to introduce congestion charging in Sydney or Melbourne, what kind of impact on congestion would we actually see? Yeah, so if we were to implement a CBD court and charge in Sydney and Melbourne, so that would involve uh, paying to drive into the CBD in the morning peak and then uh, drive out of the CBD in the afternoon peak, even a modest level of charge, we might see around 40% fewer cars entering the CBD in the morning peak. We would see an average speed improvement of up to 16% in the CBD itself, and also speed improvements of up to 20% on some sections of major arterials and freeways leading into the CBD. 
across uh, a city's entire road network, so across the whole metropolitan area, the increase in speed would only, only be about 1% in the morning peak. And now that might sound pretty modest and low, but it's also worth remembering that that's about the same kind of network-wide speed increase you get from really large infrastructure projects. So for example, Sydney's West Connects project, which is probably the largest transport infrastructure project happening in Australia right now, that's predicted to increase Sydney's network-wide traffic speeds by about 1.7 to 3%. Yet WestConnex is costing billions of dollars to put in place and a congestion charging scheme would not only not cost that much, it would actually raise some revenue. Well, that sounds like a really great idea. I mean, those numbers are pretty astonishing, a 40% reduction in cars into the CBD. Tell me a little bit about how you arrived at those numbers. What kind of work did you do to get there? So we employed some uh, transport modelling, Veachlister Consulting, who are an experienced uh, transport modeller. We employed them to uh, do some modelling of the schemes that we had in mind. And so essentially what was happening in that modelling is that they were able to predict the amount of people that were going to switch to public transport or other modes of transport, also people who might change destination in response to this price. So through that modelling, we're able to put some numbers around the likely behavioural responses. So that brings up an interesting point too, is that um, if we implement congestion charging, um, won't that mean that public transport, which is already crowded, becomes more crowded with people as people switch to potentially a cheaper option? Yeah, so that so that's a really valid concern. So a, a definite uh, outcome of congestion charging, particularly CBD cordon charge, will that will be that people uh, now start taking another mode of transport, particularly public transport, obviously. And we've seen in some previous statements by politicians that they're very wary of this issue as well. Um, and some have even suggested that it's really a precondition to have sufficient capacity in our public transport networks before we could have something like congestion charging. So back in 2015, we had the Sydney Lord Mayor Clover Moore uh, talk about how a congestion charge might make sense in Sydney, but we need to make sure our public transport is right first. Um, also, back in 2015, we had the New South Wales Transport Minister, Andrew Constance. Um, he, he left open the possibility of a congestion charge, but he noted, he noted that um, you really need to get the city settled first and so to have the, the public transport options first. And then a, a bit more recently in 2016, we had the current uh, federal opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, who was then the infrastructure shadow minister. Uh, he talked about congestion charging. It works in London, but we need to make sure we have effective public transport. So, so, this issue, so the issue around public transport is definitely a big one, but the good news here is that we're in the midst of huge public transport spending in our cities, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne. Even in the most recent New South Wales, Victorian and federal elections, the party that formed government was promising tens of billions of public transport spending in each of those cases. And... Also, the particular projects that are coming online or in the next few years in uh, Sydney and Melbourne are really transformational. So in Melbourne, we've got the Melbourne Metro, uh, the Melbourne Airport Rail, and in Sydney, you have the Sydney Metro projects and also the Sydney Light Rail. So in terms of having the capacity to accommodate switching that will occur when congestion charging is put in place, now is a really great time to be looking at this reform. 
And the other added benefit for public transport is that buses will get a better run um, in a less congested route, which means that they're probably becoming a more attractive option to people. Um, in Sydney and Melbourne. So one of the things you've touched on is that congestion charging will mean that people who don't need to take the trips at that particular time in peak hour, it'll make them change their behaviour. Tell us a little bit about that. So there's a lot of different ways for people to uh, adjust to congestion charging. And that's that's one of the beauties of it. It's not about telling people uh, what they have to do um, when they have to travel. Um, And while that might sound like, well, you'd never do that. Other countries have. In some cities that are really busy, uh, they have schemes where they say people with license plates that end in odd or even numbers can only drive on certain days. So it's actually not kind of beyond the sort of realms of possibility that uh, some cities go down that path. But with congestion charging, we create a price signal that lets people adjust. They uh, People can look at other transport options. They can look at changing the time at which they travel because as we've talked about, we only imagine applying the congestion charge at peak times. We also imagine having a shoulder charge around those peak times. So that's another option for people to pay a slightly less charge. And of course, there's also um, the, the possibility that people might not even need to make that trip at all. Whereas at the moment, um, the price signals we have just aren't there to make people think twice about whether they really need to be on the road at certain times. So there's a potential for the person going into the city to have a nice brunch with friends to delay that to midday um, rather than doing it at a peak hour. Absolutely. James, this is a question for you. What does that mean um, for people's hip pocket, especially for low-income earners? There's a certain question of fairness that comes when you um, suggest to toll or to congestion charge something. What about our friend Tina the tradie who's going to rack up $800 a month in tolls to get her plumbing business around town? That's a great question and we took the issue of fairness very seriously in this report. Um, The people that we should be most concerned about are those who are on low incomes, who actually need to drive to the CBD during peak periods and who lack the flexibility to either go at another time or hop on the train. And what we found from looking at census data and from household travel surveys is that there's just not very many people who meet those criteria. So most of the trips to the CBD in the morning are for work-related purposes, um, and the commuters who are driving to the CBD are a much more advantaged group than other Australians. There's about one in five Australians working full-time that earn a six-figure salary in Australia. Um, But more than half of the people driving to the Sydney CBD every day for work are on an income that high. Um, The median weekly income is around $2,500 for those people driving to Sydney CBD. And that's an extra $1,000 per week compared to the median full-time worker in Sydney. And we have a similar story in Melbourne where close to half of the people driving to the CBD are on $100,000 salaries. And that works out to be about $650 more every week than your typical Melbourneian who's working full-time. There's just... Also, this sort of misconception about how many jobs are in the CBD, it's only about 15% of jobs that actually are in the middle of our cities. Um, And that means that only about 3% of households in Melbourne actually have someone who drives to the CBD in the morning. And those households typically earn up to 60% more income per person than other households. So what we've seen is that, yeah, it's a pretty advantaged group that a CBD charge would affect. And there's also just There's a lot of substitutes for those people. The CBD is the easiest place to access by public transport. Um, There's train routes and tram routes and bus routes that pass through the CBD. 
Um, and that's why most people who work there actually catch public transport. It's only a minority of people who drive, and those who do tend to be earning more than the people on the train. Um, and as Greg was saying, it's not like people are forced to pay this charge. So some will adapt their travel behavior to save money. Um, and we already see this with existing road tolls. So higher income households are much more likely to drive on toll roads in any given week than lower income households. And in fact, it's the richest third of households in Sydney that pay for more than half of all of the tolls that are paid. So as for Tina the tradie, uh, you know, who's paying $800 a month in road tolls to get to work every day, um, she's in a really unusual situation. Of the 5,000 households across Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane that are sampled in the household expenditure survey, only one household in each city reported spending that much on tolls every month. But in rare instances, there will be people who can't afford to pay the charge but really need to get to the CBD. Um, and that's why governments should have a hardship program like we do for utilities, as well as considering having a discounted charge for low-income people with impaired mobility. What about um, the commercial traffic that comes through? I can imagine delivery drivers would rack up quite a few charges um, going in and out of the city. Is that for, fair for them? Yeah, so look, that's a really good point. I mean, James and I have both been talking about how one of the great things of congestion charging is that pe people have options to adapt. Um, but the people you're talking about, people that need to be in their cars for work, uh, like delivery drivers, like certain types of trade people, tradespeople, that's right, they, they do have fewer options to adapt. Um, but we think that in most cases, these delivery drivers and tradespeople they should just be able to pass the cost of the charge onto their customers. And the reason we think that is because all of their competitors are going to be in the same boat. It's not like there's going to be exemptions for some delivery drivers or some tradespeople and, and not others. And so because there's no competitive disadvantage there, there should be no competitive reason that they can't just raise their prices to cover the cost of the charge. Now, of course, what that means is that if that does occur, as we expect, and that, then that's going to mean that bringing certain goods and services into the CBD during peak hour is going to cost more. But that's also fine and fair and efficient because if those goods and services are being supplied using a valuable and scarce resource, that is the inner city roads at peak time, um, then it's perfectly fair and efficient that the cost of those goods and services should be higher. And certainly there's a space for people to move around those times, whether it's making deliveries earlier in the morning. I mean, a lot of, um, you know, fruit and veg deliveries get started very early in the morning. Um, so there is space to work around that. That's right. So I think that's a really important point. A lot of these people might be coming into the city before the time we imagine a peak charge will even apply. Um, and as you say, there is some scope to adapt in that uh, some delivery services um may look to be more efficient in, in, in terms of the time and how they're doing their delivery. So, so that's, that's a good consequence of the congestion charge. So in wrapping up, you've mentioned and given us a little sneak peek into uh, what the report will be on next week. Can you give us any more details that we can look forward to? Yeah, sure, Kat. So look, th this week's report has, has really been about making the case for congestion charging, whereas next week in our follow-up report, We'll be providing a lot more detail on how exactly we think congestion charging should be done in Sydney and Melbourne. So where exactly we imagine a CBD cordon charge could apply in both cities, how much the charge should be, more detail on the impacts of the charge, 
uh, how congestion charging might evolve in the future, and also some sort of more practical recommendations and advice for governments on some of the challenges and issues that exist around trying to make a reform like congestion charging. So you heard it here first. Stay tuned for next week for more details on Sydney and Melbourne and how congestion charging could be implemented there. In the meantime, thank you, Greg and James, for your insight into congestion charging and a potential way to reduce the congestion around our cities in Australia. If you'd like to read the report they've been talking about or any of our past reports, visit our website at grattan.edu.au. You can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news and events by following us on Twitter at Grattan Inst and on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you've enjoyed the Grattan podcast, hit subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.